In ranching, there are just some things we really don't have a lot of control on. For example, our markets and our weather. Well, so far, the markets are looking pretty good this year. So what about the weather for this fall, winter, and spring of 2024? Meteorologist Don Day joins us for the entire show as he walks us through his outlook for the next four to eight months. We'll take an overall look at what will be affecting our weather pattern, and we'll break it down by region across North America. That is a cold signal, and when we have the El Nino and that North Pacific signal that's a little bit warmer, that does have ramifications historically for uh, Canada and the lower 48 states during the winter season. La Nina is so last year and El Nino is looming large ahead of us. What does that mean for our weather outlook between now and next spring? Stay tuned and find out on today's episode of the Working Ranch Radio Show. Hi everyone, this is the Working Ranch Radio Show. I'm Justin Mills, your host, and we're glad to have you joining us here on our program today as we're gonna be talking on a subject that I can pretty much guarantee with every ounce of certainty that this probably this topic or something about this topic comes up in nearly every conversation for those of us in ranching and we're talking weather I always find it ironic and I'm guilty of it too so I'm not pointing any fingers you might start a conversation and if you don't start a conversation about the weather at some point in the conversation with someone the weather's going to come up you can almost guarantee that that's going to happen so today we're going to be doing that as meteorologist Don Day will be joining us for the entire show as he's going to be giving us his outlook and the factors that he thinks are will be affecting our weather for fall winter and we'll even touch a bit into the spring of 2024 as well while I said at the very beginning there are some things we really don't have the ability to control much in agriculture however if we can't control it it is best at least get an idea of what we might be dealing with so that we can learn to manage through that so that's really kind of the purpose of our program here today to give you that outlook of what he anticipates that's going to look at we'll get a general look and then we'll also go region by region to kind of narrow that down just a little bit as I think that will be helpful for everyone as well you know when you talk about weather well the other thing that also comes up that is always interesting is well what does the farmer's almanac say well here is what the farmer's almanac is predicting for winter they say that after a warm winter last year that cool temperatures and snowy weather conditions will return to the contiguous United States this winter and they said that because the indications are that El Nino will begin later this year its forecast formula predicts cold temperatures could prevail through the country along with snow sleet and ice ice well in general probably maybe not too far off but uh, in light of how do they come up with their special formula that was somebody said well how does the old farmers almanac uh, what's their formula for coming up with their weather well they said that they get their forecast uh, through a top secret mathematical and astronomical formula taking sunspot activity tidal action the position of the planet and many other factors in consideration they quote the almanac they said the only person who knows the exact exact formula is the farmer's almanac's weather prognosticator who goes by the pseudonym of Caleb Weatherby so they said to protect their proprietary formula the editors of the farmer's almanac prefer to keep both Caleb's true identity and the formula a closely guarded brand secret now if you talk to other meteorologists across the country they're going to say well you don't take the forecast too seriously and they say it's probably better to pay more attention to your local regional forecast rather than really rely too much on the old farmer's almanac but nevertheless you know what we still buy the book we still read the farmer's almanac it's something I get every year kind of one of those things it's just part of tradition here in our in our agricultural industry well right now let's take a quick break let's thank our sponsors today of the working ranch radio show vitalix livestock is your livelihood tubs are our expertise vitalix the true blue tub find out more at vitalix.com and the american gelvie association a highly fertile moderately framed cow that raises high performing calves even in tough environments now that's doing more with less the gelvie cow's efficient use of resources make her the picture of sustainability in today's modern beef industry find 
find out more at gelvy.org. And Tank Toad, your remote water monitoring all from the convenience of your phone powered by solar, satellite, and cell. You can keep an eye on your water supply with a daily text message. In fact, this morning when we got up, I noticed that we had lost a kind of a decent amount of, of water overnight through our cistern tank. So by getting that message, we know to get out there and check to see if we got a float off a tank or what the deal is, but we'll get that figured out and we can save and conserve a lot of water here, especially this time of the year when it's a little bit hotter than normal. And uh, we'd rather to see that water saved for these cows rather than out on the ground. So if you want to find out more about Tank Toad, you can call Metal Arc Solutions for tank monitors, well controllers, generators, and more. Give them a call at 801-252-6135 or find out more on their website at tanktoad.com. Well, it's time now to check in with the captain, Tim O'Byrne, for this week's edition of Tim's Two Cents. Hey, Justin. Hey, everybody out there in Working Ranch, Radio Land. It's no secret that America has many large foreign corporate investors functioning in the country. We have them in the beef industry, and that's all fine and good. But I'm just saying, and this is only my two cents, we really ought to consider who those corporate foreign investors are palling around with out there in the world. Back to you, Justin. All right, thanks, Captain. Uh, you know, as you were saying that, it made me think about some advice that I've tried to give my offer my kids if they'll take it or not, and that is in regards to choosing your friends because a lot of times who your friends are is how you're going to get judged. And if maybe you're not that way or don't think you're that way, well, if you're hanging with that crowd, you might get viewed that way. So I, I think there's some correlation between what you were saying here today and the, the advice I try to offer my kids from time to time when they're choosing their friends. It's always important to choose your friends wisely. And I'm pretty sure that was probably something I heard from my parents growing up as well. Well, before we head to break, a quick question. How many of you had the opportunity to listen to last week's show, episode 131, entitled Skills Needed for Today's Ranch Manager. Boy, I'll tell you what, a great show with Rick Machen of the King Ranch Institute for Ranch Management joining us as we talked about how things have evolved over the many years and he broke the skill sets into three umbrella areas and then we talked about some specific things inside of those umbrella areas. A great show. I encourage you to go back and listen to that. Now, one of the things we really didn't dive deep into or weren't really focused on in last week's show was more the personal attributes that are ranch manager should have. And it wasn't until I was talking with the captain, Tim O'Byrne, we were talking about the show and he brought the fact up of, boy, I'll tell you what, ranch managers also need to be somebody or a person that is of honesty and integrity. And I'll tell you what, I absolutely agree. I think the captain nailed it dead on that. That is really one of the most probably first and foremost there is that in in the element of that you can be at in managing a ranch, maybe it's for an out-of-state owner or, or an owner that's not present all the time. Maybe it's for your family or it's even for your own operation that there needs to be honesty and and integrity cannot be ignored. That has to be something that's first and foremost in, in anything when we look at just dealing in life in general. But also, if you're going to be a ranch manager, that's going to be pretty dang important because if they can't trust you, you're not going to have a job too awful long. We'll stay with us. Coming up next, we'll jump into our main topic as meteorologist Don Day joins us for the entire show as we get a fall, winter, and spring outlook for the weather. We'll be back on the Working Ranch Radio Show after this. A sustainable ranch is one that can do more with less. And for beef producers, it can start right at the herd level with a cow that's efficient with her resources and environment. And in today's modern industry, Gelvy females are the picture of sustainability. Gelvy and Balancer cattle are early maturing with maternal superiority through increased longevity, added fertility, and more pounds of calf wean per cow exposed. Adaptable, versatile, and sustainable. All factors that have a positive impact on your bottom line. Gelvy influenced females, the smart, reliable, and profitable maternal choice for achieving sustainability in today's modern beef industry. Be sustainable, breed Gelvy. 
And welcome back to the Working Ranch Radio Show. I'm Justin Mills. As we do a couple, three times every year as we invite meteorologist Don Day in for our entire program to give us an outlook for not just the seven to ten day outlook that we normally do, but looking a little bit further out. And so joining us here today is meteorologist Don Day. First of all, Don, thanks for joining us here to do this. We really appreciate it. And I think uh, all the folks listening will appreciate it as well. Yeah, I can't believe it. Seems like we just did this not long ago, and yeah. here we are again. <laughs> I know. I, I I think I brought up at one point a while back about we're however many days away from the first or the maybe the coldest day of the winter. So I don't know if I want to give the countdown to uh, shopping days left in Christmas here today or not to get us kind of psyched up to knowing that we are talking about looking at what's ahead in store for us for uh, fall and winter, mainly winter outlook for weather, and it really is almost 180 degrees different in some ways than what we were last year at this point in time but explain some of the factors that's all that you all are seeing that's affecting our weather compared to last year yeah when we uh, were discussing the winter outlook last year we were still in the throes of a of a strong la nina we had been in it since 20 early 2020 and it had been very stubborn, very persistent. And the question marks we had at this time last year was, well, was the La Nina going to continue through all of the winter or was it going to finally transition into an El Nino? And what ended up happening was La Nina stuck through December, started to weaken in January. And by February and into March, uh, it had really just gone away completely. And we had gone into that kind of the neutral zone between the La Nina transitioning to an El Nino. And, you know, just to review last winter is the the fact that, uh, you know, we did see a lot change with the weather when those sea surface temperatures in the Pacific began to change. Those equatorial waters between South America and northeast of Australia, that subtropical region we watch, so that's where those water temperature fluctuations change, whether it's a La Nina when it's cold there or El Nino when it's warmer. And the end result was record snowpack in California. I mean, huge amounts of snowpack in parts of the uh, the Central Rockies, the, the Sierra Nevada. Uh, we saw a lot of winter uh, in the western United States some very harsh winter weather conditions in parts of the Central Rockies. While a large part of the Midwest and eastern part of the United States really did not have a severe winter at all. It was a fairly mild winter, but it was one to remember, certainly, once we got to New Year's Day and after New Year's Day for the Western United States. So where we are now is, is that the La Nina is completely gone. Mm-hmm. We are now in a, a, a growing and intensifying El Nino out in the Pacific Ocean. It's, it's, it's going into its maturity phases here right now. And it's going to be playing a big role. So the question as we go into this winter is how strong will El Nino be? Mm -hmm. Is it going to last through all of the winter and spring season? Or maybe is it going to weaken a little bit towards spring and summer of 2024? Because that is really going to be a a big player in terms of how the winter is going to play out across North America. So lower 48, Alaska, we can throw in Canada there as well in terms of what we're going to see. So it mm-hmm. is a bit of a different animal this year. Mm-hmm. Do you think that the time frame that it took for the El Nino to transition was, was did it happen any sooner, faster? Was it on time? Because I remember last late spring or early summer it was actually late spring when boy you started hearing a lot of conversation out there that el nino was happening quicker than they expected was the timing pretty much in line with what you expected or was there any any differences there that maybe you didn't see well i think the rapidity of its weakening is what maybe caught some people a little bit of off guard of how quickly those sea surface temperatures changed and you know early in the in the spring and early in the summer season there were articles about oh here comes the super el nino it's you know it's going to be um a really really strong el nino and it's going to have all of these big impacts and then as we went through the summer what we saw was the sea surface temperatures and the development of the El Nino continuing, but not at the pace that it did when we started to see the change. The thing that happens with anything with the weather and the climate is where there's one reaction, you're going to get the other. So when we saw that change from those colder sea surface temperatures to the warmer ones, 
it, it did happen fairly quickly, as it is always a natural reaction to try to reach equilibrium. But now what we're seeing, now that we've got a little bit of time under our belt, is, is that, yes, this is an El Nino. Mm -hmm. It is certainly a different situation than the last three seasons, but it's not going to be reaching super El Nino status like what we had in 1998. We had a really strong El Nino in 2019. It doesn't look like it's going to reach those levels. Mm -hmm. So I want to jump a little bit here for more of a near-term look. Uh, and, and and I know we're, we're going to talk a little bit, uh, as we normally do, towards the fourth segment of our program here today when we get into our 7- to 10-day outlook. But one of the things that always happens whenever we have some weather phenomena, and you and I have talked about it from time to time. We, we bring this up, and I know it's always annoying to you when we start to see some weather phenomenons happening that are a little bit out of the normal, and then we bring in the conversations that are happening out there in mainstream public of, well, we got climate change that's affecting this. I want to talk and address a little bit about what we're seeing here here more currently, and that is the hurricane that we experienced a couple weeks or so ago that hit off the coast of California, and we're continuing to see some of that. That's not uncommon. It just doesn't happen often. Let's address that a little bit just in line with where we're at with what we're seeing here today. Certainly. Um, okay, so let's talk about uh, Hillary. Okay. Um, it should it should be noted that Hillary, as it came up the Baja of the coast of Mexico, when it reached landfall, it was a tropical storm in Baja, Mexico. It, it when it reached landfall near the southwest United States, California, it was not a it was not a hurricane anymore. Mm -hmm. um, and there was a lot of reporting that California had never seen a tropical storm or hadn't seen one since 1939. Well, you know, the thing is, is that uh, how the National Weather Service decides what a tropical storm is and isn't has changed over time. So it's really hard to use um, some of these interpretations. Mm -hmm. What we can tell you is, is that having the remains of a tropical storm or hurricane reach the southwestern United States, does it happen frequently? No, but it has historically in the past. And the, and the the analog storm that we saw that was closest to Hillary happened in 1976, and that was uh, what was left of Hurricane Kathleen. It took almost the exact same path. The end results in terms of who got the heavy rain was very, very similar. Um, so, you know, with, there was a lot of news reporting. like, well, we haven't seen this since 1939. That's not true. Kathleen happened in 1976. Another thing to point out is, is that when the remains of a tropical storm or hurricane reach California, the southwest United States, they tend to happen in the months of August, September, and October, historically. Mm -hmm. Historically, there is an increase in the probability of one of these happen during an El Nino. Mm -hmm. So from an historical perspective, we've seen this before, from a historical perspective, we know there's a tendency these happen more frequently during El Ninos. So, um, so the 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 history, you know, the the mystery is in the history, yeah. right? So, yeah. what you have to do is really remove yourself from the hype and actually look at the data. You know, that's I'm a, I'm a data person. Mm -hmm. So, when you when you see something like this happen, say, all right, is it really that unusual? Has it happened before? And if it has happened before, what were the patterns? like when that happened. Mm -hmm. And so everything lines up exactly with historical precedent. We we see some decades that have more tropical storm hurricane activities in the southwest United States than others, but that that correlation to El Ninos is strong. And so you'll tend to see some decades have more of these events than others. But the overall writing message here is as far back as we can go into our records, which really isn't that far back. A uh, hundred years or so, we've seen that this is, has gone on for quite a while. Mm -hmm. You brought up a good point, and we've talked about it quite a bit here on the show, and it's something that I've always found value in your forecasting is really looking back at history and more than like a 10 or 15 year, but more that 50, 80, 90 or further back. Of course, we don't have data as, as accurately maybe as we back in, you know, in the 1800s as much as we do now. But in regards to patterns, when we look ahead as we're, as our focus is here to today on this show and looking ahead into the fall and winter of 2024 if you were to go back give us some years pattern wise that this is shaping up or looking like well uh the, the one year that kind of is sticking out right now uh the the season of 2013 and 14 
is is a year that we're looking at as what we call an analog. To set the stage for the reasons for that is we had a very strong La Nina that went from 2011 through 2012 and then transitioned into an El Nino. And that's basically what we we have just experienced, right? So mm-hmm. there are some tendencies from what we're seeing and looking at the data from that winter season, there's some similarities there. We also see some similarities to the, the winter season of 2004 into 2005. Also, uh, maybe uh, some analogs go also into the early 80s. Mm-hmm. Um, one thing we have seen is, is that uh, sometimes these, let's say these harsher, more snowy winters kind of come in pairs after you segue out of a La Nina into an El Nino pattern. We saw that in 82, 83, 83, and 84. Mm-hmm. You know, 2004, 13, and 14 was followed by a pretty active winter in 2015 and 16. So um, that's going to lead in sort of what we're going to be talking about yeah. when we start talking to get specifics about what our winter forecast is. So from historical perspectives, that 13, 14 winter, 2005 and 6 and 82 80 that 82 to 84 time range as well as what we're seeing similarities okay well that's good because I, I think that's also what people uh remember back you know i can remember the big winter storm that hit us in the mid uh, early to mid 80s and i know other people have those kind of events have happened in their mind so i think that's helpful to hear that and where that's equating to as we look ahead for 2023 and 24 folks stay with us meteorologist don day is joining us here today as we're taking a long-term very long-term out weather outlook for the fall and winter of 2024 when we come back we'll start getting into the forecast of what he is seeing across the country north america wise and then we'll start looking region by region stay with us we're on the working ranch radio show stressed cattle during weaning, shipping, receiving, and vaccination by delivering a multi-day supply of essential minerals and nutrients. With Zinpro Profusion Drench, you can keep receiving calves performing and achieve a 16 to 1 return on investment with 20% reduced respiratory loss. Optimize performance from the start with Zinpro Profusion Drench. And welcome back to the Working Ranch Radio Show. I'm Justin Mills. My guest today is meteorologist Don Day as we take a long-term look at our fall and winter weather outlook for North America here today. Uh, We set the stage a little bit. If you missed the first segment, I encourage you to go back and you can find that at workingranchradio.com or on any podcast provider out there. You can go in and listen to what we were talking about as we set the stage of what is going to be the elements that are affecting our weather here for this fall and winter of 2024. Don, before we get into that just a little bit, just generally, we talked about it in the first segment a little bit, but the the fact that we are now in El Nino is really going to transition and make a little bit of a look different than where we were at a year ago. Yeah, definitely. And, and as, we, as we look at a different pattern out in the Pacific, not only near the equator, but there's some things that uh, are happening up in the North Pacific that has a really big impact when we get to what I call the cold season. Once we get into fall and winter, not only is it going to be warmer near the equator with the El Nino, but we also see temperatures slightly elevated in the waters of the North Pacific. And that is a cold signal. And when we have the El Nino and that North Pacific signal that's a little bit warmer, that does have ramifications historically for Uh, Canada and the lower 48 states during the winter season. Mm -hmm. Well, you mentioned Canada, so let's just start there as we usually want to work our way from the west to the east. So as we look at the northwestern part of the the Pacific Northwest of the U.S. and into western Canada, what do you anticipate to see starting there? That's one part of North America where my forecasts maybe differ from some other ones out there. Historically, during El Nino winters, uh, British Columbia and Washington and Oregon, maybe even Northern California, then this would stretch across the Idaho area Mm -hmm. and into Northwestern areas of Montana. They tend to be a little bit drier than average uh, because the main reason for that is there's usually a southward shift in the more active jet stream. 
So that is one part of North America where the winter may be, let's say, on, more on the mild side. Okay. Um, and if we get that high pressure ridge that develops in the Gulf of Alaska along the west coast of British Columbia because of those warmer sea surface temperatures in the North Pacific, that's one area that may be sheltered some from some really harsh weather conditions. Now, the, the flip side of that is, well, that's not good. You know, that's one area that we have seen dry out this summer. Mm -hmm. uh, Washington State and parts of Oregon, um, northern Idaho, you know, the, and, and, and parts of southwest Canada uh, have had some drier conditions. Unfortunately, I think that's going to continue into the winter into those areas. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so especially northwestern part of the of the U.S. was extremely wet this last year. But as they have dried out a little bit, there's got to be a little bit of a concern. Then uh, we already experienced some of the fires in Canada, but there's got to be some concern about that moving into the summer of next year. Yeah, and that'll be something to watch. Usually, the signal is strongest between December and and February. Um, and maybe into early March there. Now, they may transition into a, a pattern that's more wet by next spring, but for the Pacific Northwest, looks a little bit warmer and drier than average. Okay, so let's move south from there. Um, that's definitely been an area more recently that's seen a tremendous amount of rainfall. There's been a lot of need to see uh, many of those reservoirs filled back up to some extent, still a long ways, even though there was a fairly wet year last year for those to regenerate some water into those reservoirs, still a long ways off. So what does it look like for the southwestern part of the country as we look ahead? Well, I think they're going to be able to have two good years back to back when it comes to water. We saw tremendous amounts of snow. I mean, record snow, just incredible amounts of snow. Just Google, you know, pictures of Lake Tahoe snow and uh, you'll all of a sudden you'll your memory will get jogged and you'll see the <laughs> amounts of snow that fell there. Do I see that same thing happening again this year? No. However, for the, the central and southern parts of California, and I would say almost all of Nevada, maybe not far northern Nevada, but you get into the southwestern United States, central and northern California, the Great Basin states, Arizona, New Mexico, mm -hmm. Utah, and Colorado, um, with a more suppressed jet stream in El Nino's that develop, what you tend to see during the winter season is you'll tend to see a more frequent path of storms that go across central and southern California, taking a transition, taking a trip, let's say, towards that Four Corners region before heading out into the Plain States. That historically is something we've seen in the past. And if that happens, and we're pretty confident it will happen, mm -hmm. they're going to have another good water year. I do think there will be a more Southern bias to it than last year when mm -hmm. The wealth was spread really, at least in terms of the snowpack, more across all of the all of the Rockies. Yeah, um, this one's going to be more centered into the into the Great Basin, Central and Southern California, and the Central and Southern Rockies. Okay, all right. Well, that'll be good for them. I know there's a lot of they've been dry for many years, and there's a lot of a big need to see uh, many of that water. Uh, supply in the country built back up a little bit that's going to swing us up north so let's head of course as we know the rockies kind of make the continental divide there and, and we see a lot of different weather uh, east west of the continental divide versus east of the continental divide are making some changes there so let's move to the north northern part of the country the northern maybe not plains but northern rocky mountain areas and, and of montana wyoming so montana is going to be impacted, I think, a little bit by what's going to be going on in the Pacific Northwest. So we can say that southern Alberta, southern Saskatchewan uh, will be in sort of that same mix mm -hmm. um, to where uh, with the more southerly route of the jet stream, the heavier producing snows taking that more southerly track will probably favor central and southern Wyoming down into Colorado more than areas to the north. We might want to use Interstate 90 as kind of a, a dividing line. Okay. I think what you're going to see is is more snow south of 90 and less north of 90. Now, when it comes to to cold and the the temperature regime, it's going to be plenty cold in those areas. But one thing we've seen historically, especially for eastern Montana, North Dakota, and southern Saskatchewan and Manitoba is – El Ninos can can be can result in fairly mild winters. Uh, I don't want to say give the impression yeah. that uh, by any means will it be you know a 
much warmer than average winter. I don't see that. But from the storm track being suppressed south, that may keep some of the bigger storms south of that area. So livestock interests who've had it pretty rough up there here over the last couple of winters, you might not have it as severe. Mm-hmm. You go a little more south, though. You start going south of I-90. I think that's where you're going to start to see the the snow more abundant and temperatures probably averaging a below average. Mm-hmm. So that kind of takes us into last year. We kind of saw a similar element to where we saw tremendous snow. I'm in northeastern Wyoming, and by all accounts, not the cold, but in terms of snow level, I had a very, very mild winter. But you move south, uh, maybe even 90 miles, and into uh, central Wyoming, all the way into and through Nebraska, they had a pretty tough snow winter. And we talked, and in fact, I don't know if people are see the reports of the wildlife, amount of wildlife killed in southern Wyoming just because the snow was so high. So that's kind of what, are, is that kind of what you're sort of seeing as we look ahead for this year? Yes, you know, so the so the a lot of the areas that had a very snowy winter last year may see a similar situation. I think it's going to be really hard to beat the snow amounts that we saw last year. Yeah, yeah. I mean that that that's going to be hard to do. It's just that everything is going to shift a little more south and southwest from where it was last winter mm-hmm. in terms of the bullseye. Yeah. Okay. So let's just stay a bit north here and let's hit the northern plains and maybe are we are we kind of edging into the corn belt a little bit here the, the uh, central part of the country now. So let's start there and then we'll we'll work our way down and get into the southern plains of Texas. But let's start in the northern plains and the corn belt area. Okay, so you know, let's let's you know, we talked a little bit about North Dakota. South Dakota is kind of on that borderline using mm-hmm. Interstate 90 as the is the the dividing line. As you get into Minnesota, Iowa, Wisconsin, then into the Corn Belt, um, we're going to probably see the predominant winter pattern there, dominated by what we you've probably heard the phrase Alberta clippers, mm-hmm. uh, where you you'll have another branch of the jet stream that'll be going across Canada through Hudson Bay. And what it will do is it will be active this year and that will send cold fronts through on a fairly frequent basis. What that's going to do is keep those upper plain states, the Northwest really, and a lot of the central Corn Belt areas and into the Great Lakes, probably headed towards a pretty cold winter with probably average snow amounts. You may not get, let's say, a lot of big snow events, but lots of light to moderate snow events because of those clippers. Okay. Well, we're going to take a break here. We're going to continue. As I said, we're going to, we're working south. Uh, coming up in our next segment, we'll finish out the rest of the country. As we just finished here out of the, the northern Corn Belt area, we'll continue down south and into the south, into Texas, and get into the east as well as we talk about what's in store for the fall and winter weather outlook. We'll be back when we return on the Working Ranch Radio Show. There are lots of nutrition tubs out there, but none can match the true blue commitment of Vitalix. Our tubs offer you the most concentrated nutrition at the lowest cost per day. That means more profit for your operation and improved performance for your cow herd. In fact, research shows Vitalix tubs increase feed efficiency by 20% while boosting conception rates, herd health, and weaning weights. Learn more at Vitalix.com. Vitalix, the true blue tub. And welcome back to the Working Ranch Radio Show. I'm Justin Mills. Our program here today is we are looking at the fall and winter 2024 outlook for uh, weather across the country. Joining us is meteorologist Don Day. With that, we've already been through setting the stage of what is going to be shaping and forming our weather for the year. In the last segment, we went through starting on the western part of North America and moving east. As we find ourselves now, uh, just finished up in the last segment talking about the north part of the Corn Belt. Let's slip a bit south here and we always have there's always a few transition states or different parts of the country that serve as a transition area and don nebraska kind of one of those as well we look at the the eastern south dakota nebraska and in that part of the country that's a transition area let's talk about what there what you anticipate for that part of the country yeah nebraska is one of those states where it could kind of go either way and the reason for that is is that if this more southern jet stream that's more active that makes it more wet in the southwestern United States, if those storms track a little more north, Nebraska could have a pretty snowy winter, especially in the eastern counties of the state. If that storm track stays a little bit more suppressed, 
Well, Nebraska could be in the situation where they see these Alberta clippers come through, bring a little bit of snow and make it cold, but then watch all of these storms passing south. So uh, Nebraska is a flip your coin state, so to speak, <laughs> in terms of at least snowfall. Um, and I think there'll be a bias towards the heavier snowfall closer to the I-80 corridor area. Mm-hmm. Okay. So let's move a bit south, a part of the country that has been in two years of fairly dry conditions. This year it's been a bit spotty for them, but the Southern Plains, when we start getting into that area of Kansas and Oklahoma and Texas and Colorado, New Mexico, what do you see for them? Because I know they are really would like to hear something real positive from you. <laughs> well, the good news is they will hear something positive from you because historically the signal is pretty strong that if you're going to have an El Nino, the correlation between above average precipitation years strongly is biased towards that. And and when we see that southerly jet stream come out of the central and southern Rockies, you tend to have wetter years. And that would be, you know, Arizona to New Mexico, Texas, Oklahoma, and Kansas. Um, And you're going to see that, that area of a more active storm track then continue right across the southern tier of the United States. Probably one of the strongest El Nino signals that you get is enhanced precipitation that goes from central and southern California eastward across the southern United States, and that's going to include the southern plains. So I am optimistic that uh, there is going to be help on the way for those areas, especially some areas that are still running some pretty big deficits in soil moisture in some of those Southern Plains areas. Help is on the way. Okay. Well, I know that's going to be much needed. It's been pretty dry there. So as we move out of that particular part of the country, let's kind of head back North and let's now get into that, uh, the Ohio, Tennessee Valley or Ohio Valley areas and and kind of move down from there. First of all, I I think this is going to be a, a, a colder than average winter into those areas, and they will also be impacted by these clipper systems uh, to where uh, throughout the, the central and eastern Corn Belt areas, then up into the Great Lakes, uh, there's it's going to be a cold winter. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm looking at average or above average snowfall. Um, will it be as far above average as what areas will be to the south? No, I don't see that. That bias is going to favor the southern states. But it's going to be certainly a lot more winter this year than what they've seen in the last couple. Mm-hmm. And, and, and that's one theme, I think, other than that Pacific Northwest and far, far reaches of the northern Rockies and northern plains, most of the country is going to have a colder than average winter. Okay. So as we move down out of there and we start to get into those maybe the southeastern part of the country, you know, we don't really talk so much snow as much as maybe just cold uh, and that concern on freezing and and various things of that nature when we get down into uh, Mississippi and Alabama and Georgia, Florida and and areas of that nature. Are they going to see that colder than average winter this year as well? They will, but I think it's going to do have more to do with the enhanced precipitation and cloudiness that has the ability to keep temperatures cooler will probably be the bigger driver as opposed to, let's say, big Arctic outbreaks. Mm -hmm. Certainly this winter does have the ability to send some pretty cold air out of Canada into the United States. And that's certainly something that we're going to need to watch. Um, Usually, though, during an El Nino year, the penetration of those big Arctic waves to get like, let's say, to the Gulf Coast Mm -hmm. is less as compared to La Nina years. All you got to do is go back to 2021. And you know, we saw this last winter as well. We had some Arctic air get all the way to the Gulf Coast. So while I think the, the Southeast United States will have a wetter and colder than average winter, the severe cold, I think, will stay off more to the north. Okay, so let's move north from there. And I don't know that I want to totally group in the northeastern part of the country like Maine and Vermont, New Hampshire, with the nation's capital around Pennsylvania, West Virginia area. But are they, I mean, is that going to be some similar coldness or, or is is the northeast part of the country going to be quite a bit different than where we are at there in mid mid-central eastern part of the country? Well, I think the, the the historical tendency is for the, the mid-Atlantic to probably have a higher rate of ice and snow this winter compared to the last two. Uh, we're talking Carolinas there. We're talking about, uh, you know, maybe getting into Virginia, you know, the D.C. area, and maybe getting into what we call the Metroplex mm-hmm. as you get into Philadelphia and New York and, and Boston and those areas. Um the New England area, I think, is is certainly going to 
be plenty cold this winter. And again, those those clipper systems uh, coming out of the Great Lakes will bring more frequent snows, but of the lighter to moderate ones. The terms of the in terms of really big storms. That's the mid-Atlantic, those coastal areas that we're going to need to watch. Okay. All right. So we went through the entire country. We've talked about fall, winter outlook a bit. Can we go just, can I ask you to go just maybe a little further than that? And it's nothing that, you know, we, we're going to hold feet to the fire on this deal. But as we look ahead to spring of 24, what are you generally thinking is going to be shaping up to look like? What we're going to be watching very, very carefully is the strength of El Nino as we get into that February, March timeframe. Some of the latest modeling data is suggesting that this this current El Nino is going to reach its peak strength probably around January or December and begin to weaken a little bit. Doesn't mean it's going to completely go away, but it's 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 going to not be as strong. Um, but we don't expect it to be completely gone by spring. So as we get into the months of March, April, and May, unless we see a dramatic reversal in those sea surface temperatures out in the Pacific, we're expecting that the spring season will continue the same trends of the winter in the same areas, Okay, uh, which means colder than average and probably pretty wet. And you know, in some El Nino years, you can have some really wet March and Aprils, especially in the central and southern Rockies and the southern plains. Mm-hmm. You know, that's where we may see that bulk of the heaviest moisture come is actually on the tail end of this. Then mm-hmm. whether or not El Nino is around next summer, I think is a question mark. We're not terribly confident it will be a strong one if it is, is still around during that time frame. Um, but one thing that you do tend to see is wet springs tend to lead to summers that aren't as hot. So, okay. you know, for really sticking our neck out and going further <laughs> out, that would mean that the, the summer of 2024 um is probably going to be closer to average with temperatures. Okay. Well, Don, as we wrap up our segment here of our main interview today, talking about our fall and winter weather outlook for the year, just some final comments from you, because I know uh, as a meteorologist yourself, you're in the weather each and every day, as we are in the agriculture from a little bit different perspective, wanting to know what you guys are telling us. But all in all, as you, as you look at the weather forecasting and the technology that's being used today, just some final comments from you in regards to what we as ranchers, um, really, you could pass on to us as ranchers to know about what's going on when it comes to forecasting our weather. Well, you know, the the thing you know about that is, is there anything new in, in the world of long range <laughs> forecasting that you know, we have that we didn't have a year ago? The answer is no. Um, while the advances in, in, in weather modeling continue to, to get better, they continue to be better in, let's say, the next five to seven days with mm-hmm. a forecast. We're still having a really difficult time getting a handle on some of the bigger picture items that affect long-term climate trends. And, you know, that, that could be solar, that could be volcanic activity, uh, both underwater and above the ground. Um, and so, this is a young science. You know, a lot of people don't realize that meteorology really did not become a science until really World War One, when a couple of brothers named the Wright brothers invented the airplane. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, weather forecasting became much more important when they started putting people in the sky. So we're 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 still a long ways away, but we are learning that these sea surface temperature pattern changes, especially in North America, the Pacific is a really, really big player. Um, we're starting to connect the dots to where we start to see trends. And and that's all we can really do is the trend. And one thing that as a tip is, is that when you make the full transition into a new season, so as you, as you get into, let's say the the heart of winter and for most of the lower 48 in Canada, that's going to be December Mm -hmm. is the weather tends to get a rhythm to it. And what you'll tend to see is that once a pattern starts to show itself, it will repeat throughout the course of the winter. So if we do start to see these storms tracking into central and southern California and going across the southern United States, let's say in December or January, that's a sign Mm -hmm. that all of what we just talked about has a good chance of coming to fruition. If we don't see that, if all of a sudden we start to see storms tracking more north across the Pacific Northwest, across the southern border areas of Canada, 
Well, that's where the this long range forecast I told you just went wrong. <laughs> so you, you kind of want to you just kind of want to see what happens as we as we get into the beginning, because once you kind of set the pattern, it kind of sticks around through the season. And then what interrupts that is the changing of the seasons and you transition into a new pattern. Mm-hmm. OK, well, Don, we're going to have you back here as we normally do for our next segment to do our shorter long term weather than what we were talking about here in the last three segments. Folks, uh, meteorologist Don Day is our guest today. We went through the fall and winter outlook for 2023-24. And when we come back, he's going to join us one more segment, as he always does at this part of our show, as we take a look at our next seven to ten days out for weather across the country stay with us this is the working ranch radio show do you have a young child grandchild niece or nephew that loves the weather and wants to learn more day weather has produced a children's weather journal full of weather facts fun weather experiments coloring pages and pages to record weather observations for every season of the year the weather journal is for ages three to seven and designed to be fun and educational the interactive weather projects are fun for the whole family to take part in for only ten dollars the day weather weather journal is a great gift idea for any occasion click on our amazon link to order at dayweather.com and welcome back to the working ranch radio show i'm justin mills as we head into our normal weather segment uh, right now meteorologist don day joining us here this entire program today as we've been talking about our fall and winter outlook for 2023 and 24 don we touched a bit about it briefly when we were just talking long-term wise some of the activity that we saw off the coast of new of mexico and up into california with hurricane activity we continue to see some stuff moving out of the into the gulf of mexico and on the east part of the of the country hurricane activity before we get into that though one of the things that's is the extreme heat and, and i'll tell you what the southern part of the country has just been hammered this year with heat but you say there is some relief in sight well there is especially for the central states that have been really you know some really hot but also really humid conditions I mean, and, and that's led to not only these hot days in the 90s, but really, really warm nights. I mean, some nights have been upper 70s and low 80s as far north as Minnesota and Wisconsin with just a ton of humidity, but no rain because the high pressure has been so strong. But what we're going to see developing here over the next week is we're going to see that high pressure dome weaken. And we're going to start to see a more active jet stream across uh, the higher latitudes going across Uh, The North Pacific could be sending a cool front through the Midwest around Tuesday and Wednesday of next week. That's Mm going to bring relief. That's also going to open the door to the development of shower and thunderstorm activity again. Um, So there's help on the way. Now, Mm -hmm. I think for the far south, that meaning that Gulf Coast region, you know, the, the, the penetration of that cold air is not going to really be moving down enough to help, although there will be some chances of showers and thunderstorms along the Gulf Coast that will cool things off a bit. As you mentioned, the bias this summer for the heat has been the far southern areas of the United States. There's actually a large part of the U.S. that actually, if you look at beginning to the end of summer, temperatures really haven't been all that bad. But mm-hmm. that, that persistent heat in the south, while there's a little bit of help on the way, Not a big help, but certainly for the central United States, there is certainly a change in the weather coming next week. Yeah, you talk about the portion of the rest of the country has probably been a bit cooler than normal. I can attest to that. I, You know, the month of August, within a 14-day period, we had our coldest day of the summer at 42 degrees and our hottest day of the summer at 103 within about a 14-day period. But uh, we've only hit 100 twice for us here and so yeah it has been a considerably cool summer when we get into september just kind of branching out there a little bit are we going to see some fall type weather that really brings these temperatures down just across the country yeah i think what we're definitely going to see as we get into even the first weekend of september and the first week of september is less we're going to be talking less about these hot domes and start looking more at What's going on up north from Mm -hmm. the Gulf of Alaska through Canada, we see a a pretty active jet stream that is going to start to produce Canadian cold fronts. At first, in the beginning of September, we'll be calling them cool fronts, Yeah, meaning it's going to bring a temperature change. But as we get to the middle to the end of September, from the pattern I'm seeing, and a pattern that we've seen traditionally in El Nino thaws, when you have an El Nino during the fall, um, with these warmer waters in the North Pacific, you do 
have the potential for an early season cold shot, whether it happens in September or early October, I think that's on the table this year, more so than the last two or three falls. Mm -hmm. So um, in a couple, two, three weeks, I think we're going to be looking at a much different pattern across North America. We talked a little bit about some of the hurricane activity. How much of that's going to play in? You talked about maybe down in the very Gulf parts of the states. They're not going to see a reprieve from the heat, but there are going to be some, some activity coming in. How far north will that spring up into the country? Well, we do see a wave that should be developing in the eastern Gulf of Mexico um, here in the coming days that is likely going to lift northeast, may cross Florida, then across the southeastern United States. It may not have enough time over open water to become a big player. Uh, one strong hurricane uh, is likely going to be moving uh, northward up into the central areas of the Atlantic, but probably staying off the east coast. One thing that is going to be kind of stymied is, is this we talked about Hillary and Hurricane mm -hmm. Hillary and all the rain that it was coming on in. Well, the Pacific is going to be blocked from really allowing anything to come into the western United States with this change in the weather. So if we're going to have tropical activity over the next seven to 10 days, it's going to be in the southeast United States. OK. All right. Well, Don, I appreciate you joining us here. I've taken a lot of your day here and I know you're getting back after you were in New Mexico this this past week and kind of getting recuperated from that. On behalf of all the listeners out there, I do appreciate you taking the time to give us an update. I think for a lot of us, in fact, on my whiteboard here, I'm figuring out what my costs of feed or protein and supplements going to be for the year and I was telling the, the gal the other day she wanted to know how much I wanted to order of this particular product and I said well if you could tell me how much snow I'm going to have in the ground in January I could make a way better decision so, but we, we can only do so much and I appreciate you giving us this information here today on the program happy to be here and again that was meteorologist don day with our long-term weather and joining us for the entire show here today giving us a look of what he anticipates for the weather across the north america here for fall winter and a little bit of a glimpse of his ideas or thoughts for spring of 2024 by the way if you want to follow him each and every day you can find his daily video podcast at dayweather.com it's always good to look ahead this for a lot of us here in ranching industry always looking out there to see what we need to be planning for and i hope today's show will help you do just that stay with us we're going to talk about what's in store for next week's edition of the working ranch radio show after this A sustainable ranch is one that can do more with less. And for beef producers, it can start right at the herd level with a cow that's efficient with her resources and environment. And in today's modern industry, Gelvie females are the picture of sustainability. Gelvie and Balancer cattle are early maturing with maternal superiority through increased longevity, added fertility, and more pounds of calf wean per cow exposed. Adaptable, versatile, and sustainable. All factors that have a positive impact on your bottom line. Gelvy influenced females, the smart, reliable, and profitable maternal choice for achieving sustainability in today's modern beef industry. Be sustainable, breed Gelvy. Well, if it hasn't landed in your mailbox already, it probably will be here shortly. And that is the latest issue of the Working Ranch magazine. I encourage you to take a look for yourself. Packed full as it is, every issue is always full of great articles and stories and information that is very applicable to all of us here in the ranching industry. So be sure to take a look for yourself. And another reminder, folks, if you don't have a subscription to Working Ranch magazine, you're missing out. Take a look for yourself. Go to their website at workingranchmag.com and you can get your subscription started here today. Quick thank you to our sponsors, Vitalix, the true blue tub. Find out more at vitalix.com. The American Gelvie Association. Find out more at gelvie.org. And Tank Toad, your remote water monitoring system. Find out more at tanktoad.com. Well, the Working Ranch Radio Show is a production of Working Ranch Magazine, branded number one by America's Ranchers. Now, if you'd like to get a hold of me, it's pretty simple. You can do it a couple different ways. Maybe you have a question you'd like us to answer or show topic you'd like us to cover my text is 307-363-COWS or you can also shoot me an email at justin.workingranch at gmail.com be sure to join us at the same time same place next week or on your favorite podcast provider i'm your host justin mills and until next time keep your chin down and your mind in the middle so long <laughs>